Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got a news show for you this week. i got a few things to catch you up on. Uh, promised to talk about the Twitter hack. We're definitely, definitely going to discuss that today. Uh, not, not only some of the details about what happened there and, and how it happened, but um, also going to kind of back up and take a broader look at that by reading an essay from Bruce Schneier, uh, who, as always, uh, gets the big picture and really kind of brings the important parts of this into focus uh, beyond the details. I also have been promising a talk about the upcoming security and privacy features in iOS 14 and macOS 11 or Big Sur. Those are coming out probably September. Uh, so I, I do have a roundup of some of those features. I've been telling you I was going to talk about those. Uh, also, just some regular new stuff. We're going to talk about some a whole bunch of credentials that have been found and are on sale uh, on sale on the dark web. It's not new, but man, there's a lot of them. And, if, and it will take this opportunity once again to talk about what you can do about that. I'll talk briefly about a, another Windows 10 problem. Uh, it's an internet connection problem bug that uh, has not yet been fixed, but I'll, I can give you a quick fix for that. I'll talk briefly about Signal because I've uh, been touting Signal as the best, most secure anywhere, the most privacy oriented messaging app as, as opposed to like WhatsApp or face, certainly Facebook Messenger. And they kind of made a controversial decision recently, and I want to at least address that. And then finally, we're going to talk about a, a security research survey of many, many popular modern Wi-Fi routers, and uh, many of them, most of them, failed uh, pretty badly. Uh, so we're going to talk about router security again, which we talked about not that long ago with the network uh, Netgear bug, but this is really covering lots and lots of models, so... Uh, we'll wrap up with that, and that'll lead into our tip of the week. And we'll get to that in just a second. I just wanted to make sure you stay tuned at the end. I got a, a couple interesting new uh, interviews on the horizon that I want to tease you about. But for now, let's get into the news. All right, first up, an article from Threat Post, and uh, you know the title's pretty catchy. It says, 15 billion credentials currently up for grabs on hacker forums. And while this is not like a one-time thing, it's it, they're basically drawing attention to the fact that it's really become a uh, quite a lucrative business. And um, they kind of get into some of the prices for some of these things, which I found was interesting. So uh, let me read a little bit from this article. 15 billion usernames and passwords for a range of internet services are currently for sale on underground forums, shedding light on the sheer scope of compromised credentials that are fueling account takeovers on the internet. A report Wednesday titled From Exposure to Takeover by Digital Shadows Photon Research Team, odd name, found that 100,000 separate data breaches over a two-year period have yielded a 300% increase in stolen credentials, leaving a veritable bonanza of account details on dark web hacker forums up for grabs. Most of the credentials are from consumers, and while many are sold on forums for an average price of $15.43, many are also given away for free by hackers, researchers found. Threat actors gain access to these credentials in a number of ways, among them phishing, credential-stealing malware, and credit card skimmers. And it's never been easier for them to lift this type of sensitive information from user accounts, says Rick Holland, CISO and Vice President of Strategy for Digital Shadows, in a press statement. Brute force cracking tools and account checkers are available on criminal marketplaces for an average of $4, as well as new options for account takeover as a service that allows criminals to quote-unquote rent an identity for less than $10, he said. 
The report also highlights the persistent problem that people aren't taking even the simplest proper security measures when they use some 191 services that required them to enter their credentials online, Holland noted. Again, quoting says, The message is simple. Consumers should use different passwords for every account and organizations should stay ahead of the criminals by tracking where the details of their employees and customers could be compromised. The credentials being flogged online vary in access and price, according to the report. They include usernames and passwords for everything from bank or financial accounts, which comprise 25% of the credentials analyzed, to video and music streaming services and antivirus programs. Unsurprisingly, credentials for bank and other financial accounts are also the most expensive to purchase, selling for an average of $70.91 apiece, these researchers found. Indeed, data that puts potential financial gain on the table tends to be the most valuable to the threat actors, which makes sense. Data for accessing antivirus programs earned the second highest price on the hacker forums at an average of $21.67. Threat actors apparently find access to media streaming, social media, file sharing, virtual private networks, and adult content sites far less valuable with these credentials traded for significantly under a dollar on these forums, according to the report. So anyway, it's really nothing new. Uh, This next article uh, I'm going to read to you is, but I just thought it was kind of fascinating to to see, you know, kind of how these different things are valued and how they're bought and sold uh, on the dark web. But that leads to this next story about uh, uh, 142 million MGM hotel guest info uh, information found on the web. So this is recent or... Actually, it's an update to a story that was, uh, I think, was broken in February. But anyway, uh, this is once again from ThreatPost. It says, Researchers have found 142 million personal details from former guests at the MGM Resorts hotels for sale on the dark web. Evidence that a data leak from the hotel chain last summer may be far bigger in scope than previously thought. An advertisement on a hacker forum has put 142,479,937 details from MGM Grand Hotel's guests up for sale for more than $2,900, according to a published report on ZDNet. In the ad, the hacker makes a connection between the newly advertised credentials and the previously known leak of personal details of more than 10.6 million guests who had stayed at the MGM resorts. That breach, news of which surfaced in February, was attributed to unauthorized access to a misconfigured cloud server that occurred at the hotel chain last summer. And this is a quote from this uh, dark web ad from this uh, hacker. It says, quote, However, what was not reported was that the MGM Grand Hotels was, was also breached, consisting of 142 million entries, unquote. MGM Resorts International is the parent company of the MGM Grand, as well as some of the most iconic and well-known resorts in Las Vegas, including the Bellagio, Mandalay Bay, the Mirage, and Luxor. As there is no quote-unquote MGM Grand Hotels in the chain, merely the MGM Grand and the parent company MGM Resorts, it's not entirely clear which properties specifically contributed to the 142 million credentials being sold online. However, given the number of credentials offered, it seems fairly safe to assume that they are from guests at hotels across the resort chain. It's also unclear if the 10.6 million credentials from the MGM Resorts posted to a hacking forum earlier this year is included in the database of 142 million currently up for sale or if they are two separate data stores. The smaller database included personal information, such as full names, home addresses, phone numbers, emails, and dates of birth from celebrities, tech CEOs, reporters, government officials, and employees at some of the world's largest tech companies. Among the famous names cited in the reports of the leak were Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and pop music star Justin Bieber. The database also had details for officials from the Department of Homeland Security and the Transportation Safety Authority, according to the reports. So yet another data breach and a lot of other accounts leaked online. 
And the only thing you can really take away from this, because there's really nothing you can do. <laughs> this this was not your fault uh, that these places were, were hacked. You had no way of knowing ahead of time that just by staying at one of these MGM Grand Resorts or uh, MGM Resort Hotels, that your data was going to be leaked. So two things. First of all, when you are checking into these places, when they ask for information, when they ask you for some of these detailed information bits, give out as little as possible. And on certain things like like your birthday or some things that might be really personal, you can really just lie. Just you know, give them something that makes you you know that looks reasonable, uh, but is not your true birthday. Second, do not use the same password on multiple sites. These hacks are happening all too frequently, and uh, when these guys, hackers, get a hold of these databases, and if they include passwords, even though those passwords are, encrypt is not quite the right word, they're hashed, they're cryptographically hashed, uh, which makes them, you know, you can't just look at them and see what the password is. You'd have to do some computer crunching to try to reverse engineer that and get the actual password. But if you chose a really crappy password, that's actually not hard to do. So the upshot, again, make sure you use strong, unique you know, crazy passwords uh, on every website that requires one. And the only only way to do that is using a password manager. All right, moving on. Uh, this is I'll just cover this quickly because that's a little bit technical. Um, but if you happen to be bit by this, you might want to know. Um, so Windows 10 has had a lot of issues lately <laughs> with their updates. Uh, and this one in particular, I guess, is really frustrating. Um, and it shows up as a no internet connection, a little yellow uh, like triangle warning thing. And it's not I guess it's apparently it's not on your regular browser, but it's on some apps that use the internet. Uh, I'll just read very briefly from this article, and it, it does go into uh, kind of gory detail about how you might fix this, and I'll run through that just real quick. Uh, but, you know, if you want the details, uh, I will try to put the link to this article in the show notes, or you could just go directly to Lifehacker, uh, where I got this little snippet from, uh, and look for the Windows 10 fix there. So from the article on Lifehacker, it says, Windows 10 updates tend to break things, and the most recent Windows 10 version 2004 update is no exception. And by the way, let me call attention to that. Microsoft names its updates, they've been naming their updates recently by the last two digits of the year. And then I think it's the two digit month of when they're supposed to be released. So in this case, 2004 is not, it kind of sounds like that's really old. It's not, it's from 2020. That's where the first two digits come from. And 04, which means it was supposed to have been released in April. And I can't remember if it was April or May, but Anyway, that's a little confusing when people see, you know, the most recent version of Windows 10 is 2004. Uh, so that's kind of confusing. So I just wanted to call attention to that really, really quick. Back to the article. According to numerous forum posts, the latest irksome bug prevents Windows 10 apps from accessing the internet even when the PC is successfully connected and your web browser is working just fine. Annoyingly, the bug seems to show up without warning or reason. If you see a yellow no internet access error triangle in the Windows 10 system tray and can't connect to the internet in apps like Steam, Spotify, or Fortnite, but you can browse the web as you normally would, you've got the bug. Microsoft acknowledged this bug in a support forum thread and says it stems from an issue with the Windows 10 network connectivity status indicator. The company is investigating and will patch the problem once the solution is engineered but some users have already found a reliable workaround that should restore network connection for your apps in the meantime. So here's how to fix it. And there's a step-by-step process here. Um, and you're probably not going to remember this. Uh, so you're probably going to have to look this up. But nevertheless, let me go through this real quick. Uh, and it involves going into the registry editor, which is already you know beyond what a lot of people probably listening to this podcast are willing to do. Uh, but if you search for the registry editor in your search bar and launch that application and click yes when it asks if you want to make changes because we're about to make changes, 
Then in the registry editor, you need to search for and uh, kind of look through the little hierarchy and find the following. H key underscore local underscore machine slash system slash current control set slash services slash NLA service. That's NLA SVC slash parameters slash internet. <laughs> Get all that? Uh, again, you're going to want to look up this article. But anyway, if you find this key uh, and you right click it and you say you want to en enable active probing and, and select modify and you just change the value data from zero to one and you click OK, close the editor and restart your machine and everything should work. But if that's too much of a hassle and it probably is, uh, just keep your eye out for another update from Microsoft to fix this in the near future. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Signal. Um, Signal is a extremely well-written messaging application that I've talked about many, many times. I've recommended it in the book. I've recommended it for years. Uh, Edward Snowden himself has been famously recommending this one over the years. And basically, it's a nonprofit organization led by this security guru uh, named Moxie Marlinspike. And I'm pretty sure that is not his uh, birth name. But they created this really great, uh, actually a whole protocol, a signal protocol, which actually is the basis for uh, other applications like WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. And it's freely available for any other uh, company to pick up and use. And then, you know, Signal, as a proof of concept, basically took that protocol, that highly secure, highly private protocol, and created their own application called Signal. And Signal is, for years, has generally been held up by uh, security experts as, as the best, the gold standard when it comes to truly secure and private messaging apps. However, there was one, a couple things about it that uh, irked some people. First of which is to sign up for that, you give it your cell phone number. Uh, that's got advantages and disadvantages. The first advantage is that it allows you to quickly see anybody else that you know who also is a signal user because uh, it, if you give it act access to your contact list, uh, it could just look at the phone numbers of the people in that list and say, oh, hey, this person's on signal, this person's on signal, and kind of populate your contacts for you. The downside is you, that's, uh, you know, people's phone number today is is really almost more identifying than their email address or maybe even their social security number because we give it out freely and it's all over the place. And it, does, it doesn't change. People keep their, even when they change carriers, people keep that number because that's the number everybody has. So today it's almost like a modern equivalent of a global ID. But this got around the problem of, you know, if you sign up with some username that you pick, then there needs to be some sort of a centralized database of these things uh, so people can find each other. But as Signal's gotten more popular and regular everyday users started to use it more than, you know, super privacy nuts like me and other security experts, uh, you know, they, people coming from WhatsApp and all these other messaging services, you know, kind of demand these other features that they have, which some of them, you know, in order to implement, basically means that Signal now has to keep track of some of this information and store some information on their servers, which means that it could be hacked or, you know, compelled by, you know, law enforcement or national security letter by the CIA, NSA, whatever. So, you know, part of the benefit, uh, part of the, the draw to this thing was until recently, Signal didn't have to keep any information about you. So Moxie Marlin Spike and the folks at Signal came up with this thing where if you create a pin number, you can then save your contacts to the web. And the other, the, the other problem with the, the, their approach of not saving any data is that if you get a new device, saving your contact list and perhaps even saving some messages saved from one device to the, to the new device is basically not possible. 
So they've come up with what they believe is a secure compromise that allows them to store your information uh, on their servers in a highly secure manner using some heavy-duty cryptographic techniques. But nevertheless, a lot of uh, big security researchers, among them Matthew Green, have basically come out against it and said, this is, you know, I may stop using it because of this. This basically assumes that, you know, now you have to put trust in Signal and all of these security uh, mechanisms like Intel's SGX and hope that those things are never broken. And, uh, you know, so anyway, the, the what really turned off a lot of these people is this whole pin thing. And they've been basically forcing it down your throat and not really giving you the option not to do it. My guess is that Signal will give people the option uh, not to do it. And that will probably resolve this for most of the people who are real sticklers about this like me. But anyway, that's all I'll say about it. I just wanted to bring it up because it was kind of in the in the tech news, and uh, I know I've talked about it many times. And since there was a little bit of controversy around this, I thought it would, it's only fair that I bring it up and share that with you. Okay, now let's get into the Twitter hack. And this has been all over the news, so I'm sure you've heard about this at least a little bit somewhere, even if you're not a Twitter user. And there's been many, many articles on this, and I'm just going to read a little bit one uh, here from ThreatPost. Uh, I picked a lot of their stuff this week. Um, it does, but it's a good website. So anyway, and it's security oriented. So I'm going to read a little bit, just, just a little bit from that, just to kind of give the background of what happened. And then I'm going to spend some time going through a really good essay, um, by Bruce Schneier, um, who we've had on the show and a highly respected world renowned security guru. And he, as always is really good about kind of stepping back and getting the, the forest view, the 30,000 foot view of some of these issues and, and helping us see that the true, impacts of these things at a higher level. So first details, let me read this article, a bit of this article from threat post that kind of gives the background. Twitter locked down thousands of verified accounts belonging to elite Twitter users and high profile companies Wednesday afternoon. And this would have been, uh, if you're hearing this, it would have been last Wednesday, or actually I think the Wednesday before that in an effort to prevent hackers from perpetrating a massive cryptocurrency scam. The accounts fell victim to a compromise of the company's internal systems by a group of unidentified hackers that managed to gain access to Twitter company tools and secured employee privileges. By late Wednesday, the accounts of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Apple, and Uber, and many other high-profile Twitter users fell victim to the attack on Twitter's backend, and backend is their, their servers. Tweets sent from those hijacked accounts each promoted an advance fee cryptocurrency scam promising to double the value of Bitcoin currencies sent to a uh, sent to a specific wallet. And let me just stop there to explain. So basically what these scams said is, uh, I think one of the Bill Gates ones says, you know, people are always telling me to give back. Well, now I'm going to do it. So uh, for the next 30 minutes, I will, I will double the value of any Bitcoin sent to this Bitcoin address, which is like a wallet. Basically meaning if you give me a thousand, I'll give you 2000. So obviously if you just stop and think about that just a second, <laughs> it's quite obvious that it's a scam. Why, if you're going to give me 2000 bucks, if I give you a thousand, why don't you just give me a thousand? But nevertheless, uh, this scam managed to get, I think they estimated over a hundred thousand dollars. But anyway, let me, let me go back to the article. By late Wednesday night, Twitter released a series of tweets explaining the compromised accounts were the result of a social engineering attack. And this is a quote from those tweets. It says, we detected what we believe is a coordinated social engineering attack by people who successfully targeted some of our employees with access to internal systems and tools. We know they use this access to take control of many highly visible, including verified accounts and tweet on their behalf, unquote. In an attempt to thwart the scammers, Twitter locked down its verified accounts. 
Other efforts were made by digital currency exchange Coinbase, which prevented users from sending money to the Bitcoin address. All right, so that's all I'm going to read, but let me just kind of go back over a couple of these points. So on Twitter, you can be what's called a verified user, and, and they're, they're called blue checks, because if you're a verified user next to your name, there's a little blue check mark. And obviously, when it comes to high-profile, uh, very famous people, um, it's all important, certainly to them, that their accounts are verified. And you go through some process with Twitter, um, you know, so they actually can verify that you are who you say you are, so that when you're tweeting as Barack Obama or Joe Biden, uh, everyone could believe that uh, you really are that person. Except in this case, where <laughs> where there exists within Twitter administrative tools, which, you know, that's common for companies like this that give them privileged access. But there was some sort of a, what we call a God mode tool that in the right hands, and apparently there was like a thousand employees or so at Twitter that had access to this, gave them full access to all Twitter accounts. And this person, whoever, this hacker, and I think it was actually, a, uh, he was working con in conjunction with a couple other hackers uh, who are part of a group that tries to basically take over the high profile um, accounts with like one digit or one character uh, in their names, which are, you know, they came really early and they were early on Twitter. So those are very valuable accounts. But anyway, they managed to get through social engineering, which is to say that didn't this wasn't a hack. This wasn't a software bug that they exploited. They basically, through phone calls, emails, uh, whatever communication mechanism, somehow convinced somebody within the company who had access to this tool to give them access to the tool. Details of that have not really emerged. We'll probably hear about that later. Uh, but this is getting more and more common, especially with high security places, because, you know, security is good enough that the weakest link is people. So this hacker, when, so this hacker, when they got hold of this tool that would let them control accounts like, you know, really big name companies and people decided to use it with a Bitcoin scam. Uh, it's so kind of ridiculous on its face that I've heard a lot of people speculating that that's nothing but a smokescreen for whatever they were really doing. But if that's the case, we have not heard about that yet. So anyway, so that, that's kind of the summary of the details of what happened and what we know so far about how this went down. Uh, I'm sure more details will emerge, but Bruce Schneier has a really good essay about this. And I'm going to read you the whole thing uh, and comment kind of along the way, because it really draws attention to a lot of very important aspects to the story that are being, that are either not being covered or kind of being glossed over by the, the kind of the immediate urgent, you know, reporting of exactly what happened. All right. So uh, here we go. This is again, this is Bruce Schneier. Twitter was hacked this week. Not a few people's Twitter's accounts, but all of Twitter. Someone compromised the entire Twitter network, probably by stealing the login credentials of one of Twitter's, Twitter's system administrators. And we just, that was a guess at this point, but we now know a little bit more, which I just told you about. Those are people trusted to ensure that Twitter functions smoothly. The hacker used that access to send tweets from a variety of popular and trusted accounts, including those of Joe Biden, Bill Gates, and Elon Musk, as part of a mundane scam, stealing Bitcoin. But it's easy to envision far more nefarious scenarios. Imagine a government using this sort of attack against another government, coordinating a series of fake tweets from hundreds of politicians and other public figures the day before a major election to affect the outcome, or to escalate an international dispute. Done well, it would be devastating. Whether the hackers had access to Twitter direct messages is not known. And I'll stop. Uh, direct messages or DMs uh, are private messages back and forth from Twitter users. And it was, since this article has been written, it was found that at least some of the direct messages were uh, were looked at by the users. But uh, so far they said, I think the only politician or public figure 
uh, whose DMs were hacked was uh, some uh, politician in the Netherlands. So not Joe Biden, uh, not President Trump, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. But nevertheless, <laughs> it's still bad. Okay, so back to the article. These DMs are not end-to-end encrypted, meaning that they are unencrypted inside Twitter's network and could have been available to the hackers. Those messages between world leaders, industry CEOs, reporters and their sources, health organizations, are much more valuable than Bitcoin. And then he says, parenthetically, he says, if I were a national intelligence agency, I might even use a Bitcoin scam to mask my real intelligence gathering purpose. Back in 2018, Twitter said it was exploring encrypting these messages, but it hasn't yet. Internet communications platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are crucial in today's society. They're how we communicate with one another. They're how our elected leaders communicate with us. They are essential infrastructure. Yet they are run by for-profit companies with little government oversight. This is simply no longer sustainable. Twitter and companies like it are essential to our national dialogue, to our economy, and to our democracy. We need to start treating them that way. And that means both require them to do a better job on security and breaking them up. This kind of attack is known as a class break. Class breaks are endemic to computerized systems and they're not something that we as users can defend against with better personal security. It didn't matter whether individual accounts had a complicated and hard-to-remember password or two-factor authentication. It didn't matter whether the accounts were normally accessed via Mac or a PC. There was literally nothing any user could do to protect against it. Class breaks are security vulnerabilities that break not just one system, but an entire class of systems. They might exploit a vulnerability in a particular operating system that allows an attacker to take remote control of every computer that runs that system's software or a vulnerability in an internet-enabled digital video recorder and webcams that allows an attacker to recruit those devices into a massive botnet, or a single vulnerability in the Twitter network that allows an attacker to take over every account. For Twitter users, this attack was a double whammy. Many people rely on Twitter's authentication systems to know that somebody who purports to be a certain celebrity, politician, or journalist is really that person. When those accounts are hijacked, trust in that system took a beating. And then after the attack was discovered and Twitter temporarily shut down all verified accounts, the public lost a vital source of information. There are many security technologies companies like Twitter can implement to better protect themselves and their users. That's not the issue. The problem is economic, and fixing it requires doing two things. One is regulating these companies, requiring them to spend more money on security. The second is reducing their monopoly power. The security regulations for banks are complex and detailed. If a low-level banking employee were caught messing around with people's accounts, or if she mistakenly gave her login credentials to someone else, the bank would be severely fined. Depending on the details of the incident, senior banking executives could be held personally liable. The threat of these actions helps keep our money safe. Yes, it costs the banks money. Sometimes it severely cuts into their profits. But the banks have no choice. The opposite is true for these tech giants. They get to decide what level of security you have on your accounts, and you have no say in the matter. If you are offered security and privacy options, it's because they decided you can have them. There's no regulation. There's no accountability. There isn't even any transparency. Do you know how secure your data is on Facebook or in Apple's iCloud or anywhere? You don't. No one except those companies do. Yet they're crucial to the country's national security. And they're the rare consumer product or service allowed to operate without significant government oversight. For example, President Donald Trump's Twitter account wasn't hacked as Joe Biden's was. 
because that account has quote-unquote special protections, the details of which we don't know. We also don't know what other world leaders have those protections, or the decision process surrounding who gets them. Are they manual? Can they scale? Can all verified accounts have them? Your guess is as good as mine. In addition to security measures, the other solution is to break up the tech monopolies. Companies like Facebook and Twitter have so much power because they're so large, and they face no real competition. This is a national security risk as well as a personal security risk. Were there 100 different Twitter-like companies and enough compatibility so that all their feeds could merge into one interface, this attack wouldn't have been such a big deal. More important, the risk of a similar but more politically targeted attack wouldn't be so great. If there were competition, different platforms would offer different security options, as well as different posting rules, different authentication guidelines, different everything. Competition is how our economy works. It's how we spur innovation. Monopolies have more power to do what they want in the quest for profits, even if it harms people along the way. This wasn't Twitter's first security problem involving trusted insiders. In 2017, on his last day of work, an employee shut down President Donald Trump's account. In 2019, two people were charged with spying for the Saudi government while they were Twitter employees. Maybe this hack will serve as a wake-up call. But if past incidents involving Twitter and other companies are any indication, it won't. Underspending on security and letting society pay the eventual price is far more profitable. I don't blame the tech companies. Their corporate mandate is to make as much money as legally possible. Fixing this requires changing in the law, not changes in the hearts of the company's leaders. So that's the end of the uh, end of his essay. Um, and I don't think I could add much to that or say it much better. But these social media companies have just gotten so big and so important and so vital to today's commerce and sharing of news and communications from from obviously all of our world leaders. I mean, it's President Trump's go-to mechanism for reaching the people. And because these companies are monopolies, they, they have no incentive whatsoever to improve security and privacy. In fact, in most cases, since these companies are really at their heart advertising companies, there's a direct conflict of interest with your privacy and their profits. So anyway, I think Bruce said it best. I'll leave it at that. I would say that breaking up these companies is probably not going to happen anytime soon, but we could still certainly require them to up their security game. We could also finally implement some decent data privacy laws that benefit, you know, us, the people and not the corporations. And if we can't break them up, we could at least require them to standardize some of their uh, some of their products so that competitors can get in on the action too. All right, let's move on to uh, my promised segment. I was going to tell you some really interesting um, features that are coming up in the latest Apple software, um, their operating systems. That includes their desktop operating system, uh, Mac OS, which is going to be labeled version 11 or Big Sur, uh, and iOS, which is used on iPhones and iPads. Uh, iOS 14 version coming out, um, probably with the new iPhones and such that usually come out in September. Apple uh, almost always previews these features at their Worldwide Developer Conference, which is uh, usually early June and did happen this year. It was the first one that was all completely virtual. And uh, among many, many, many other features that are coming, uh, they detailed a, a handful of really cool security and privacy features that are going to be coming as well. So I wanted to I wanted to uh, go over a few of those with you just so you can uh, <laughs> anticipate them along with me uh, as they become available soon. So first up, as we know, uh, your phone knows where you are, not only because 
cell tower triangulation, which is kind of the old way of roughly figuring out where somebody was. Uh, but now, if, you know, for detailed weather reports and all these fancy apps we have where we want to, you know, see what's nearby to find restaurants or gas stations or ATMs or whatever, uh, we have built-in GPS, which has a very, very fine granularity to pinpoint our location. And because of that, that location service is made available to many applications. And many applications have totally abused that. <laughs> Not only, you know, some some of the weather apps, for example, which, you know, if you want to know the local weather, you got to have it know where you are. So you have to give it permission to use your location. Uh, but to monetize that information, they turn around and sell that lo location information to other people, uh, advertisers, marketers, or even, honestly, security firms, um, private investigators, law enforcement. So, uh, you know, Apple... I got to give them a lot of credit. They they think about this stuff a lot and they're kind of in a unique position uh, of being a privacy-oriented company because they were never an advertising company. Google who makes Android um and even Microsoft to some degree making Windows, you know, they're they make profits off of uh your information. Now, of course Microsoft sells their operating systems. They don't make the hardware, they make the software. You know, so they do make some money off the the operating system cost itself. Um but you know, margins are thin. The, you know, when you're trying to get people to buy your product, you want to get the pro uh, the price down, so they supplement that price. Uh, in some ways, it's not as bad as Google and Facebook, but they have been found to be, you know, slurping up some of your data and using it for direct marketing purposes. Anyway, so location is one of those things that has really gotten a lot of attention lately because we've it's been exposed that many of these applications are tracking you uh, and using that location data for other purposes. So what do you do? Well, Apple has come up with a rather interesting compromise. And coming up, uh, they will have a new um, location option. So instead of all or nothing, like you could either tell them where you are or you can't, uh, you can tell them roughly where you are. Uh, it's basically an, in, an imprecise location option. And I think what they did, I read about this somewhere, I think the way it works is they basically kind of broke up the planet, or at least the inhabited areas, areas of the planet, into large, I think it was 10 square mile or you know, ten uh, a square 10 by 10 miles grid. And so it's not like they, they, they fuzz your location and if you follow it enough, you'd be able to kind of triangulate again. Um, if you're anywhere in that 10, uh, 10 mile square grid, they say you're in, you're in this grid. So it's a compromise of not knowing exactly where you are, but at least giving them enough information to, let's say, get the local weather. Or even, you know, probably to some degree, finding some local restaurants and things like that. Uh, also coming up for the iPhones and iPads is going to be a, uh, a little indicator light uh, that'll tell you, uh, based on what color it is, whether or not your microphone or camera are currently being used. And you're probably used to seeing this if you've got a Mac laptop or an iMac where it's got a built-in camera because there's a little green light there that tells you when your camera is being used and when the camera's been turned on. But now there's going to be a little indicator like that on your iPhone and iPad as well. With the idea being that protecting against, you know, some nefarious application, turning on your camera or turning on your microphone when you don't, uh, when you're not expecting it. Uh, and this giving you an indication that, Hey, you know, someone's, someone's watching or listening to me right now. Now the downside with that, and I'm sure Apple's gone to great lengths to address this is that, um, and this has been found in the past. Some of those little lights that you see on many cameras, uh, many webcams that have a little light to indicate when, you know, when they're on, when you're on the air, uh, hackers have found a way to turn the camera on without turning on the light. And that is a engineering mistake. There should, there should be no way for those two things to be 
to happen at the same time. If the camera's on, the light's on. If the light's off, the camera's off. And I'm sure Apple's gone to great lengths to make sure that's the case in this uh, in this situation. But anyway, so that that's an, another welcome change. I've talked a little bit about this before, and this uh, the sign-in with Apple feature has been around, I think, since last year. Um, and that is like sign in with Facebook, sign in with Google. Basically, if you're going to a website and they want you to create a new account, uh, they also can give you the option, well, if you don't want to bother creating a whole new account with a whole new password, remembering all that, well, just sign in with Facebook. And basically, Facebook vouches for you, assuming you're logged in with Facebook. You know, click the button and Facebook comes back and say, yep, this guy's good. Here's an ID to remember him by. Uh, but you don't have to worry about storing the password. We'll do that for you. Of course, what really happens under the cover with Google and Facebook doing that is what they're doing is they're creating marketing ties with these third co- third-party companies and sharing, you know, data across all these apps that you're signed in with. So Apple has risen to the occasion and created a sign-in with Apple option, but theirs is extremely privacy-oriented. And they've gone so far as to say if you're going to offer login with Google and login with Facebook in your application, you must also offer sign-in with Apple. And of course, this only applies to iPhones and iPads or possibly websites uh, when you're using the Safari browser. And again, this isn't new. This, they've actually had this for a while. Um, uh, one of the cool things about this when you sign in with Apple is not only do they not track you in any way, shape, or form, they only give the, the company you sign in with uh, minimal information about you. Uh, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's anything like name or whatever. I think it's just an uh, anonymous ID. And also, um, one of the problems with these a lot of these things, as soon as you sign up, you get all this email spam. Well, uh, there's an option when you sign up with sign in with Apple to say, give them a generic kind of anonymous email account. And they give them some wacky email address that whenever uh, that company sends an email to that address, Apple will forward it to you behind the scenes to your iCloud email or probably any whatever email account you want. And then if you reply, I think it similarly scrubs the address so that when they get the reply, they don't see your real email address. So that's another nice thing. And if at any point, if you want to cut off communications with that company, you've got a unique email address that you gave them that you can just turn off. Well, now apparently uh, this is this is new. I thought this was actually there originally, but um, uh, now you can actually upgrade your existing accounts with sign in with Apple. So if you do already have an account with this uh, company or website or whatever, and you want to change that to a sign in with Apple account, you can. Though honestly, I'm not sure what benefit that gets you. You've probably already lost the information. Maybe it allow you to change from sign in with Google and sign in with Facebook to instead sign in with Apple. I would do that if I had the choice. Another kind of cool uh, thing, again, this goes along with app permissions. When you give an app permissions to do certain things, one of them, some apps will want is access to your photos. And maybe it's a, maybe it's a photo editing app, or maybe it's like Facebook Messenger, where you want to be able to post, you know, take pictures, then post pictures to Facebook or whatever. Uh, Unfortunately, until iOS 14, that was all or nothing. So you either give them access to all your photos or none of your photos. And in iOS 14, now you can limit that access. Uh, It's probably either by specific folders or albums. Um, I have not yet seen uh, what granularity you have in controlling what they have access to, but it's a welcome change. and basically lets you limit uh, the photos. It's not an all or nothing thing anymore, kind of like location. I will say briefly that they try to put a lot of this stuff in in their Safari browser, Apple Safari browser, and I don't talk about it much because I generally recommend Firefox. Though, you know, if you do use Safari, you don't use a PC for anything, then Safari's pretty good too. Um, and so they're going to be adding some privacy reports, like you can click on a web page and it'll tell you uh, what kind of trackers are there. Firefox already does this. It'll also do password monitoring. Uh, so when you go to a website and that website has been known to be hacked, it will tell you, hey, this you know this site's been hacked. You might want to change your password. Again, Firefox has that already, or LastPass for that matter, if you set it up. But anyway, it's good that they're adding that feature. 
next up, one of the things that Apple's been doing that has really ticked off advertisers and companies like Google and Facebook is they've really started making it a lot more transparent in the, how you're being tracked and giving you a lot more choices about whether you want to be tracked. And apparently there is uh, this notion of cross-app tracking where from one app to another, these applications share information about you. And Apple is now bringing that front and center and giving you control and transparency over this, letting you know which apps are trying to do this and giving you the option to say no. And finally, this is going to be kind of interesting. And I've actually been kind of wanting something like this for security for a long time. And I've, But they're going to be adding uh, what they kind of the analogy is a food nutrition label for applications. Uh, and that being a very simple, standardized, icon-based, uh, with minimal, you know, minimal data and things you have to read. So you can get basically at a quick glance uh, with this new system, all applications, and this actually is supposedly not coming more toward the end of the year. Um, all applications on the app, on the app store will have this, basically this privacy nutrition report where you can quickly look at it and see, you know, do they collect data? Do they track your location? Uh, and all application developers are going to be required to give this information. And even though it's self-reporting, uh, which you might think would defeat the purpose, I have read some articles that saying that they're going to be very strict about this, probably tied up in legalese and stuff like that, so that if they ever were to break this, there may be fines or things like that, or certainly they'd be kicked out of the App Store. Nevertheless, any move toward more transparency and standardization so that people can quickly compare you know, applications and services with regard to security and privacy is very welcome. So that's it. Those are the highlights, and it's some really good stuff, and I wanted to make sure I brought that to your attention. Uh, if you are an Android user or a Windows user, uh, it's no it's no surprise that I'm a Mac fanboy, an Apple fanboy. Uh, so, you know, I'm certainly biased, I will say as much, but um, there's a lot of the security and privacy nuts that are, that are with me on this, that if you had to choose, you know, uh, iPhone versus Android or uh, Mac OS versus Windows, that it's pretty straightforward that Apple's the way to go at least in terms of privacy. I think security, you know, all parties are doing their best, but uh, certainly when it comes to privacy, you want to look at Apple. All right, last story of the week. Um, we talked recently about some Netgear Wi-Fi router troubles. Well, this well-known security research firm did a study of a lot of modern Wi-Fi routers and found basically almost all of them lacking in terms of security, which is scary. But we're, uh, let me walk through this article with you real quick, and then, of course, we'll end up with our tip of the week, and that is what you can do about this. Uh, so these are excerpts from a, a report by Tom's Guide, a really good web, uh, web resource, um, which I don't quote often, but uh, they do good work. And they talk about this study. So th they say, let me uh, read from the article. It says, Almost all home Wi-Fi routers tested in a mass study by Germany's renowned Fraunhofer Institute had serious security vulnerabilities that could easily be fixed by router makers, a recently report states. And this is from the press release from that report. It says, quote, nearly all were found to have security flaws, some of them very severe. The problems range from missing security updates to easily decrypted hard-coded passwords and known vulnerabilities that should have been patched long ago, unquote. Using its own analytical software, the, the Institute tested the most recently available firmware from 117 home Wi-Fi models currently sold in Europe, which I assume most of those are sold in the U.S. and elsewhere as well. Uh, including routers from Asus, D-Link, Linksys, Netgear, TP-Link, Zyxel, and the small German brand AVM. The models themselves were not physically tested, and I'll stop there to clarify. So they didn't, like, buy one of each of these products. Instead, what they did is they downloaded the software that runs on those products, and so they didn't really evaluate the security of the hardware, which 
generally requires physical access anyway. Like, you know, if someone's in your house messing with your Wi-Fi router, you got other problems. And it was just obviously cheaper and easier for them just to go to the software update sites for all these routers and just download their software. All right, back to the article. A full list of the tested models and firmware is on GitHub. And if you really want to find that, I'll put a link to this in the show notes and you can go check out the, the full list. Because the study was begun in late March and examines the firmware available on March 27th, it's not, it will not include the dozens of firmware hotfixes that Netgear issued in late June to correct a series of flaws, which we talked about on the show. AVM came out by far the best among the seven manufacturers examined, although it was not without flaws. Asus and Netgear did not do well, but they were less terrible than D-Link, Linksys, TP-Link, and Zyxel. The flaws included out-of-date firmware, and then it parenthetically says the D-Link DSL321BZ had not been updated since 2014. Out-of-date Linux kernels, and <laughs> a kernel is like the key core of an operating system. So in Linux is the operating system, the free open source operating system that many of these routers run on. So it's saying that basically the, the core Linux underlying operating system of a lot of these were way out of date. And it, and like every one of these that lists, it gives one parenthetical example. And the parenthetical, parenthetical example they give here is the Linksys WRT54GL, uh, which uses the Linux kernel from 2002. Uh, next, it lists failure to implement common security techniques. And here's where it says that ABM did better than the rest. And next area of, uh, of vulnerability, secret private keys embedded in the firmware so anybody could find them. And finally, hard-coded administrative usernames and passwords allowing full device takeover. And it says here parenthetically that only the ASUS had none of these. So a quote from the report says, There is no router without flaws, and there is no vendor who does a perfect job regarding all security aspects. Much more effort is needed to make home routers as secure as the current desktop and server systems, unquote. There are a few routers named in the study that you definitely should not use, even though it appears you can still buy them. Quoting from the report, it says, The worst case regarding high-severity CVEs, and CVE is short for Common Vulnerability and Exposures. Uh, it's how we kind of, if, if you hear about security flaws, that's usually CVE-something-something-something. Anyway, it says the worst case regarding high-severity CVEs is the Linksys WRT54GL powered by the oldest kernel found in our study. There are 579 high-severity CVEs affecting this product, unquote. That particular model had its firmware updated in January of 2016, one of the oldest firmwares in the study. The Linksys WRT54G was first released in 2005 and is still sold today, even though it handles Wi-Fi protocols only up to 802.11G, which is pretty darn old. Another no-no model is the Netgear R6800, which, as mentioned above, had a whopping 13 hard-coded private security keys embedded in its firmware. And what that's basically saying is that there are ways to access those routers remotely using hard-coded, meaning unchangeable, well-known passwords. Its last firmware update was August 2019, and we'd not want to use it until a new one was made available. And then it goes on to say that that model wasn't part of the late June series of Netgear hotfixes. Private keys are a crucial part of the mechanism governing internet security, and routers would use them to initiate secure transmissions and verify firmware updates. They need to stay closely guarded secrets to be effective. But that's pretty well undermined if the keys can be found in the router's firmware. Then there's the D-Link DSL321BZ, which hadn't had a firmware update since August of 2014. In total, 46 models hadn't received updates in more than a year, although most had within the previous two years. Quoting from the report again, it says, If the vendor did not update a firmware in a long time, it's for sure 
there are several known vulnerabilities in the device, unquote. So what can you do? And this will lead into the tip of the week. They already give a couple examples and I'll elaborate on these. And said, so what can you do? You can make sure that the next router you buy automatically installs firmware updates. You can check to see whether your current router does so or makes it fairly easy to install firmware updates manually. So I'll stop there. Um, this is a new feature for a lot of modern routers and it's really essential. Basically what it says is, you know, their software, all software has bugs. And so we, whenever there's a bug found, they ship out a new update with that as a fix for it. And if you're not monitoring that yourself, if, if, if your router, almost all modern routers at least allow you to wait to upgrade the firmware, but you have to log into the router yourself using the administrative account, find that part of, you know, part of the administrative config where it lets you download and install new firmware and then manually install it. If this is your only option, you definitely need to do this. If you're in the market for a new router, if your router is basically more than, I'd say, th probably three years old or maybe four years old, I would, you know, probably seriously consider getting yourself a new router and make sure that that new router has this functionality built in. In other words, it will automatically go and fetch software updates and up upgrade itself whenever they're available, that it's completely hands-off and automated. All right, their next point says, you should also make sure that the administrative password for your router has been changed from the factory default password. And then they give a really nice website, which I've actually put in the fourth edition of the book as well. It's called uh, routerpasswords.com. And this is basically an exhaustive list of every manufacturer make and model with the default administrative password that they come shipped with. And in many cases, they're really bad. I mean, they're obvious, like it's, you know, user admin, password, password. Some of them is user admin and password is blank. What that basically says is if the, anything gets into your home network on the inside um, of your home network, this wouldn't be available, hopefully, from outside. I'll talk about that in a minute. But if there's any sort of a compromised device inside your network and it's looking around to try to hack your... And this would be a common thing to do. If I'm writing malware, I would totally do this. And it's, it has been done. Uh, if I'm on a network, I would say, hey, I wonder if I can hack the router. Uh, and it would try all these passwords that are well-known. And if it can hack that and install its own custom firmware, and now it's hacked your router, and that's basically the gatekeeper to your entire home network. Then from there, it can try to hack every device in your network. So your router is a crucial piece of equipment, and you really need to make sure that it's kept up to date. And you need to make sure that you've changed that default administrative password. So if when you go to that website, routerpasswords.com, um, it'll tell you how to log in to your router's administrative webpage. Uh, and then you should go and find the password using a password manager, change that to something really good. And then while you're there, uh, make sure that your router's administrative inter interface is not accessible outside your home network. Uh, in other words, from the capital I internet from anywhere on the planet, some of them have this capability and some of them have this capability turned on by default, which is just insane. So look around at the administrative webpage. You probably have to poke around a little bit, but look for remote uh, remote maintenance or remote config or remote administration. And if you find any of that stuff turned on for the WAN side, the wide area network, which is the fancy name for the internet, the, the big the big network out there, turn that off. There's also a feature called UPNP. That's U-P, the letter N-P, the four letters, which stands for Universal Plug and Play. And this was something I think Microsoft created many years ago that allows some devices, mostly game consoles, but it's been now... Uh, TVs and other things use it too, basically allows them to talk to your router without you having to do anything and negotiate with the router and say, hey, I would really like you to open up these ports in your firewall. And if you get any messages on those ports, send them to me. 
which, you know, very handy if because most people have no idea how to mess with their firewall and open up ports and do port forwarding. But most modern things have worked around that now and do not need this. And so you should, if you have UPnP turned on, turn that off. And that's basically the end of the article. They do they do mention one more thing, and that is if you sometimes if you have one of these older models, particularly like some of the Linksys models, there are a lot of um, open source communities out there that have rewritten uh, the software for those. And you can, instead of installing the stock firmware uh, on that device, you can download and install these open source firmwares that take over the router and basically, from a software perspective, becomes a whole different thing. Uh, and they tend to be much more secure and have automatic update built in, all those things. But, the, you know, that's not really for the faint of heart. Uh, and honestly, if, you know, if you're at the point where you're considering that and you're not super techie, I would just go get yourself a modern router, uh, get yourself a new router that has automatic updates built in and turned on by default. All right. Well, it seems when I have these interviews that go <laughs> that span two weeks, that this just piles up the more news to talk about. So thanks for hanging in there. We had to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, I've got more interviews coming up. If, uh, if all goes well, there'll be another one next week. And I've got a really big, uh, really big get, hopefully, on the on the horizon, too. Uh, somebody I've been wanting to have on for a long time, uh, a journalist who's done some great work uh, on privacy. So a uh, little tease there. Hopefully that'll come through soon, too. And I'll leave it there for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. You can also check out the blog and the newsletter at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Of course, you can also go to the podcast website, which is just uh, podcast.firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, and you can find all the show notes there. If you like what I'm doing, if you appreciate what I'm doing, I uh, would like to help out. Uh, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, uh, search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, and you'll find all the information there. That's it. We'll be back again next week, as always. Hope you're all surviving this summer heat wave and the whole COVID craziness. Stay home, stay healthy, wear that mask when you go outside. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.